Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Today, we are continuing our series called Family Survival Kit, in which Pastor Roy is looking at various topics on how to survive as a family in today's culture. Today, you'll hear a message entitled Building a Household of Faith, where Pastor Roy will look at the keys necessary to build a household where faith is important. We encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along with Pastor Roy Burkett. Today we're going to talk about building a household of faith. Uh, Pastor Tony Evans said, many of us are disturbed in our homes rather than being married by the justice of the peace. It looks like we've been wedded by the secretary of war. Uh, there's a lot of turmoil in the home today. Uh, it also reminds me of the guy that uh, he was crying over a tombstone at a cemetery. and He was just wailing. Why did you have to die? Why did you have to die? Why did you have to die? Another man was there visiting, another lost relative, and he said, Sir, I'm so sorry. Is that your wife? The man said, No, it's my wife's first husband. Uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of marriages that are in trouble. And um, uh, I want to relate a story to you that um, will fit in well with the sermon today. Um, years ago, when I was a teenager, we went on a canoe trip, our small church, and I had the privilege of riding in the canoe with a guy that was um, a high school student. He was six foot two, 200 pounds, and a strong, able-bodied man. And many of you remember that I have a fear of water and don't care to be in water over my head. And um, some of the people in the group uh, did a very unchristian thing that day. Um, they decided to take their canoe and put it on the bank, and they made a little line across the river and uh, started dumping people, turning their canoes over, dumping people in the river. Uh, which I didn't find particularly delightful. Um, but anyhow, we found ourselves in the river and our canoe going downstream because of the strong current. And uh, he started going after the canoe. And uh, I hollered at him and said, don't worry about the boat, I'm sinking. And um, anyhow, I, which I really wasn't because I had a life jacket on and, and I was fine. Uh, but uh, in a moment of panic, uh, crying out for help, so he was able to rescue the canoe, but had to hold it against the uh, strong current uh, for us to be able to get back in it, which was not easy. And uh, it reminds me of what's happening in the home today, that um, if we're going to build a household of faith, we are going to go against the current of culture. Uh, the current is very strong, pointing the other way, pulling the other way. And so therefore, we're going to have to be very intentional. And God has given us a picture of a household of faith in Psalm 128. And so I want to share those verses with you, and then uh, we'll uh, unpack those. Here's what it says, Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. 
Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. What I want you to notice here in this psalm is it really starts off talking about the individual. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. The individual who puts his fear, uh, has a fear of God and walks in God's ways. And then from there it goes into uh, the family, the husband, the wife who fears the Lord, their children who fear the Lord. And then by the end of the passage, it's talking about a city as he talks about the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. And that's the way it works. It begins with an individual, it moves to a family, and it eventually impacts a city. So to build a household of faith, uh, I want you to notice what the psalmist does not tell us in this passage. The psalmist does not tell us if this family lives in in an expensive house or a double-wide trailer. He does not tell us if they walk on plush carpet or have no carpet at all. He does not describe the furniture if it is in good shape or in need of repair. He does not offer any suggestions on the contents or decorations in the home if they are eye-catching or embarrassingly outdated. He does not even bother to tell us what kind of automobiles they drive or the size of their camper or the length of their boat. The psalmist does not tell us the occupation the father has, whether he is a white-collar, successful businessman in a, possession, in a position with a big office and title, or works by the sweat of his brow and holds down a blue-collar job. He does not tell us whether he has several letters after his name or no letters at all. The psalmist does not bother to tell us the father's net worth or how much he has saved up for his retirement. What the psalmist is zeroing in on is what a household of faith looks like. Before we can construct a household of faith, we need to know what a household of faith looks like. And so here's some things we need to remember and understand. To build a household of faith, the parents need a biblical understanding of what is required to raise a family. I was recently reminded of the book by Steve Farrar entitled Getting There. And in that book, he suggests two things that every family needs. And I want to share those with you. And that is these. Number one, every family needs provision. And number two, every family needs care. I think everyone could agree that when you think about a family, every family needs provision. Uh, A provision of of food, uh, shelter, clothing, spiritual direction. Uh, But they also need care. So the question is, whose responsibility is it to fulfill these obligations? According to Genesis chapter 2, 24 and Ephesians 5, the husband and wife become one in marriage. And if that is true, then how do the husband and wife together fulfill these responsibilities? Sidney Smith uh, made a humorous comment when he said, Marriage resembles a pair of shears, so joined that they cannot be separated, often moving in opposite directions, yet always punishing anyone who comes between them. 
And that's really the way it ought to be in marriage, that the two become one. And they together will fulfill these obligations of providing care and provision. Now this next statement I'm going to make will maybe raise the hair on the back of your head or maybe make you think I've been living in a hole for a number of years. Um, But Steve Farrar made this comment in his book and I agree with it and I want to share it with you. And um, I trust that you'll give me time to explain um, uh, why we say this. And that is this. God designated that in the home, the man is to be the primary provider and the wife is to be the primary caregiver. In 1960, America believed this statement. Because in 1960, 80% of all mothers stayed home to raise their children. In 2000, nearly 66% of all mothers work outside the home, at least in a part-time capacity. Yet, when we look at Scripture, we recognize that God has delegated the responsibility of providing and caring for our families to the parents. We as parents then need to be careful how we fulfill these responsibilities. Some parents have chosen to delegate that responsibility to someone else. The reasons for delegating that responsibility of caring to someone else is numerous. Some, because of divorce. They therefore are forced to seek out other help for child care. Or the death of a spouse, uh, an unenviable position of trying to fulfill the responsibilities of both dad and mom. Some have faced sickness or injury to a spouse that has brought financial hardship on a family. Others, a one-person income seems to cause a shortfall in meeting the monthly budget. In fact, there was a new study that indicated that those who put their children in child care are deeply concerned about the well-being of their children. The nonprofit group Public Agenda found that 70% of parents with children under five years of age believe that one parent staying at home was the best arrangement during a child's early years. I remember when I was working my way through seminary almost 20 years ago, the company that I worked for had a workforce that was comprised of 70% women. Now when I share about this, about a woman staying in the home, I want to make it clear that I'm talking specifically about women and families with small children, preschool age children. Um, There are certainly opportunities that they can work outside the home, but you're limited. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, we'll talk about that uh, as well a little bit later. The next thing I want to communicate, not only do parents need a biblical understanding of what is required to raise a family, but the parents will put God first in their lives. Notice in our text, it says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Blessed means happy. Happy. Joyful. Um, It reminds me of the man who was looking at a couple and he said to his wife, Look at them. They look so happy. They look like a happy couple. She said, Don't be too sure. They're probably saying the same thing about us. But people who are blessed by God, have a joy about them. 
And the reason they have that joy is because they're doing things God's way. They are seeking to build a household of faith. And therefore, they experience the goodness and favor of God. Now, parents who put God first in their life do so how? First, the text tells us, by fearing God. Someone who fears God is someone who has a proper attitude of awe or respect towards God. And you can tell that because their attitude or respect is shown toward God's word. Whether, when it's preached, when it's taught, uh, when they read it, they have a respect and an awe for the word of God. They also will seek to walk in God's ways. He goes on to say, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. So by walking in the ways of God, we show that we are putting God first. It means we're following God's path. We're following the course that God has laid out for us. And how do we do that? By keeping the commands of God. Psalm 119 verse 1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And we can remember that, that when we go back to Genesis chapter 5, we can read about Enoch. The Bible says that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. And then a couple of verses later, it tells us that Enoch walked with God and was no more. What a way to end life to walk with God for 300 years faithfully and then to be translated into eternal, our eternal destiny by walking with God. That's what God requires. If we are going to build a household of faith, we will do so by fearing God, by walking in his ways, by keeping the commands of God. Secondly, we listen to the shepherd's voice. He says in Psalm 23, 3, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We listen to the shepherd's voice and allow him to guide us. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. A lamp to my feet gives me wisdom for direction today. It's on my feet. It's where I'm at currently. A light for my path gives me wisdom for the future that I trust God for my future and what he has for me laid out and I'm able to follow him. I have a strong commitment to the church because you see this psalm is a psalm of ascent. A psalm of ascent means the pilgrims were making ascent a journey, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God. And on that psalm of ascent, I can only imagine their hearts started beating a little quicker as they were getting to the city of God to worship God, to honor God, and to serve Him. So there's a strong commitment to the church. Psalm 84, psalm 84 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's what he says. Let's move on. The husband takes headship seriously. If we are going to build a household of faith, you cannot do it by a husband who will not take headship for his home. The home won't work well. The husband needs to take headship. You can't just sit back, go to work, drop your paycheck on your wife's lap and say, here, take care of it. 
Do the rest. I did my work. No, you got work to do at home. A lot of work to invest, to train your children. Someone, I'm sure, humorously said a father is a noun. And he said the noun is this of a father. The person you can talk to when your mother is having a major mood swing. <laughs> He's the person you can go to. The steady guy who's supposed to keep things going. Let me offer this. Doug Wilson offered some suggestions on a job description of someone who is serious about their leadership role in marriage and family. Let me just go through these. You can agree or disagree, but let's just look at these to give the idea of what headship would be like to get a picture of it. Number one, he must first decide he will thoroughly acquaint himself with the Bible's teaching on marriage, headship, and the family, and that he will gladly submit to it and put it into practice in his home. Have you ever done a study on marriage in the Bible? And, and look at that and see what God would have you do to acquaint yourself with that. Secondly, he will love his wife as Christ loved her growth, her development, her spiritual well-being. He will not place any responsibility for the spiritual, emotional, physical, and financial condition of his household on his parents, wife, children, church, or society. Remember we said every family needs what? Provision. Whose responsibility is it to provide? The husband, the man, according to the Bible. He will assume before the Lord all responsibility for the home he represents before God, and he will pray for the grace of God to stand. He will not take his wife away from her primary duties as mother and manager of the home. He will bring her home to the children, the place God ordained for her to be, and will encourage and will he will encourage and love her in that vocation. He will establish her in the place where she can attain greatness, and when she has attained it, he will rise up and call her blessed. He will work hard so that his wife is able to clothe and feed his family. He will set the tone of his home through his patience, reverence, dignity, kindness, and courtesy. Now again, if you have school-aged children, you're in a different position because you can have a job while your children are in school. So we're not saying that you can't work at all. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. <laughs> Interestingly enough, some people decided to change the meaning of the word head. They said head, the word kephal, some argued it didn't really mean head. They said it meant source. The husband is the source. However, that's not true. Dr. Wayne Grudem is a graduate of Harvard, Westminster, and Cambridge. He studied the word kephale, or head, and he discovered that it was used 2,236 times in ancient Greek literature. The kephale, the word for head. 
Every time it was used, it was translated head. He looked up every time it was used, and he looked at it in context. He said every time that word was used, it meant head. Responsibility that God has given us as men. Satan, however, undermined male headship, did he not, in Genesis by bypassing Adam to tempt Eve in Genesis 3. Eve yielded to the temptation first, and then he pull, she pulled Adam into it. But when God came to the garden looking for Adam and Eve, who did he go to first, Adam or Eve? He went to Adam because Adam was the head responsible, showing the headship that God even established back in the garden. He approached Adam first because he had the position of headship and responsibility. So in the home... The man is to be the primary provider and the wife is to be the primary caregiver in the home. Primary means chiefly, largely, or mostly. Not necessarily totally. Um, the wife can help. And as your children get older, you have more opportunity uh, for that. In a, to build a household of faith, the wife takes caregiving seriously. The husband takes headship seriously. The wife takes caregiving seriously. Notice what it says here in our passage. Verse 2, you will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine. Where? Within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. You can just sense a home of harmony and peace and spiritual investment, health. When you have a vine that brings forth fruit, and we talked, uh, I think a few weeks ago about the idea of olive shoots. When you have olive shoots coming off, they can bear fruit for 20 generations. There's great opportunity in that. The woman is to be the primary caregiver does not mean she cannot contribute money to the financial picture of the home. According to the scriptural plan, the man is chiefly responsible for physical provision and the woman is chiefly responsible for caregiving in the home. Why is that essential? Because that's the way God sovereignly orchestrated the, the man and wife would operate in their home. Provision and care are two non-negotiables for building a household of faith. We won't take the time to look at it, but if you go back and even look at the curses in Genesis chapter 3, the curse that was upon the woman was given to what? Her in childbearing because that was her primary function and responsibility. Where was the curse given to man? In his work because he was mainly to provide and the curse was on his provision. So we can even see that in, in Genesis as well. In 1 Timothy 5.8, look at this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It doesn't mean just bringing home a paycheck. You are to provide spiritual oversight and direction and investment into your family. You are to lead to be the head to set the spiritual temperature in your home. And if you are not godly yourself, that's where you've got to begin. Humble yourself before God and become the godly leader God wants you to be. 
That's a pretty strong indictment, isn't it, that Paul offers. He also says this about care in 1 Timothy 5.14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. What does he mean here by this phrase, manage their homes? Here's what it means. To be master of a house. I'm thinking of Joseph when he was prime minister in Egypt. He oversaw the stocking and the distribution of grain. He managed the work, the supply and demand. He was the master, the overseer, and that is what God has called the wife to be, the master and the overseer of that house when the children are young in that home. And here, notice he says, manage their households and give the adversary what? No occasion for slander. The word occasion here means opportunity. Satan is always alert, Warren Wiersbe says, to an opportunity to invade and destroy a home. And if the mother is removed outside that home and the responsibility is given to someone else to care for those young children, you have just given a beachhead for Satan to set up his operation in your home. Now again, what did I say at the outset? I talked about swimming against the current, didn't I? This is preaching against the current. It's not popular. Because we have bought into the idea that we have to have certain things by a certain age and we gotta, we gotta do this and that. And, but yet a Christian wife needs to be there to care for those small children that the Bible says, if you look back in chapter 127, verse three, Sons are a heritage from the Lord, God's property. What God has done is he has entrusted us with his property to raise these children to know God so they will build a household of faith and the blueprint for them to do it when they get older. It's crucial. Notice what it says in Proverbs 31:27. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. You have a wonderful picture of a woman inside the home in Proverbs 31, yet she's working and industrious, and it seems like she's working on the side, doing things, and yet caring for her family. Look at Titus 2, 4, and 5, and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working, where? At home. Kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So the scripture has given us, God has given us a blueprint to build a household of faith. Are we going to follow it? It can require great sacrifice to do that. But again, I'm talking about the small children, especially, and how there's a need for that. This whole idea of Working at home means home guardian. She mentors the younger women by her example and her words. She follows the leadership of her godly husband who is living in godly fear. Working at home comes from two words, which means house and guard. It means worker at home. You're a guard at home. A guard is there to what? To protect what's inside the home. 
You've got young lives with young hearts that have lots of questions. And the mom needs to be there to answer those questions and to raise those children. Some people would say, well, this isn't a cultural mandate that applies to the 21st century. That was for Paul's day. Really? Let's go back and look for a moment then. What did it say in Titus 2.4? Train the young women to love their husbands. Is that cultural? I don't think so. And their children? No. To be self-controlled, is that cultural? No. To be pure, is that cultural? No. So how can working at home be cultural? Submissive to your husbands, is that cultural? No. So it's not cultural. He's challenging us that this is the way we are to live our lives. You see, Jesus, when he was making disciples, how did he impact his disciples? By being with them. He was with them when they ate meals. He was with them when they went to the marketplace. He was with them when they went to wedding festivals. He was with them everywhere they went. Because that's how you impact. And that's the opportunity and the privilege that God has given us. And I remember people telling us, oh, how, how lucky you are that you can have your wife at home. Not luck. <laughs> it's striving to do things God's way in God's timing. You see, at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, numerous men left home to work in factories in order to provide for their families. He did this, though, so his wife could stay in the home to continue to provide care for the children. But now we have a second revolution that's happening, and it's causing millions of women to leave the home when they have small children to care for. Do you know what all the children in a daycare have in common? Steve Ferrar asked this question in his book. What all the children in a daycare have in common, they all want their mommies. Now again, when you have children at school, I'm trying to make this clear, I think there's provisions for you to be able to work outside the home. And if you can work your schedule that the husband can be home in the evening and you can work it out in the evening while you're home, then that, that works. Uh, there are things that you can work out together as a family. But to pray about it and really think about, are we building a household of faith? What are we building? G.K. Chesterton said a woman's function is laborious, not because it is minute, but because it is gigantic. He said, I will pity Mrs. Jones for the hugeness of her task. I will never pity her for its smallness. Unfortunately, in our culture, I know when my wife left her job, she had a master's degree in counseling. Some people thought she was throwing away her degree. She totally disagreed. Couldn't have disagreed more. She was using it in the home. Can anyone tell me two things, G.T. Chesterton said, vital to the race, more vital to the race than these. What man shall marry what woman? 
And what shall be the first things taught to their first child? Let's stand for a word of prayer. As you stand for prayer, I want you to look up here just for a moment yet. Some of you will remember back in 2003, the Space Shuttle Columbia exploded upon re-entry 16 minutes before it was scheduled to land in Florida after a 16-day scientific mission in outer space. Colonel Rick Husband was one of the seven who was killed. Steve Green was giving a concert. He was good friends with Rick Husband and his wife, Evelyn. And here's what Steve learned about Rick Husband's life. He said he learned that astronauts lead extremely busy lives. But Steve was very impressed with Rick's commitment to discipling his two children. Before Rick left on that mission, he made 34 devotionals by video before he left on the Columbia. There were 17 for his daughter and 17 for his son, one for each day he was to be gone. So each day his son and daughter had their own devotion with dad by video. At the time, his son Matthew was seven and his daughter Laura was 12. Today, they would be 19 and 24, around that age. Can you imagine having those videos to look back on these last 12 years of dad? Wow. You know, I think we need pictures like that to remind us he was busy. But what was the priority of his life? And there were people who worked at the NASA facility that said as he was leading the astronauts to the shuttle and they were going to actually talk to the press, before he went out the other side of the door, he stopped his crew and he said, wait a minute, let's stop right here and pray before we talk to the press. And they said they had never seen that in all the years they ever worked there. He was absolutely committed to God in his life. What a way to die, walking with God. Maybe you're here this morning, and this message is not popular to you. I said at the outset, we are swimming against the stream. I think about William Wilberforce who said, you know, let's abolish slavery. Um, that was a little tall order. It got abolished. We still, just because things don't seem right in our culture and outdated, doesn't mean it's still not true, and it works. It does. And it sends a message to the world. But you are swimming against the culture to do it. But that's what God's called us to do. To be counter-cultural Christians. And that's what I want to challenge all of us to be. If you are here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I make an appeal to you. First of all, do you know you're lost? Do you know you are headed for an eternal place the Bible calls hell? 
And if you want a description of it, look it up in the Bible. It is not a place where there will be parties. Because <laughs> a lot of people have a misconception of hell. They've never studied what the Bible says about it. It is a horrible, horrible, we couldn't even describe it bad enough. And it's not a scare tactic, it's just reality. If you are not walking with God, you don't have a relationship with God, that's where the Bible says you are headed. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross. He loved you. He demonstrated his love for you in this, that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What greatness of love. What greatness of mercy and grace. It is available to you, but God says, I resist the proud, but I give grace to the humble. If you resist God, he cannot work in your life. You have to invite him in. God, I need your grace. God, I need you. Are you willing to do that? And if not now, when? What is holding you back? Will you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's my appeal to you. And then my appeal to all of us is to strive to build households of faith which will go against the current of our culture. Fear God. Walk in his ways. You'll have great blessing. I want you to be encouraged in the Lord. If you have a need in your life that you would like somebody to pray with you about, would you seek me out or somebody else after the service? I'd be glad to pray with you and meet with you. Let's pray together. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.